Please be advised that this episode contains discussion of sexual assault, rape, and paedophilia. Hello, and welcome to Tech Point Zero, the show about technology, people, and politics with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode 6, released in October 2019. My name is Ben, and as ever, I'm joined by Chris. In this episode, we'll be talking with David about working in software testing, discussing the controversy around the orchestration tool Chef working with the US government department, and speaking about the recent resignation of Richard M. Stallman from the Free Software Foundation. Let's get to it. There's been quite a lot of news lately, challenging news that I think we should probably talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about was Chef. The uh, what are they actually called is it a provisioning framework, or I think it's often called like an orchestration tool. And it appeared that they were working with ICE at the moment, and this has been raised internally as uh, a bit of an issue with the moral direction of the company of the company and the employees there. Do we know what I stands for? U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. There you go. And it was created by George W. Bush in 2003. Yes. Uh, as a response to the September 11th attacks. And they have been, in the direction of the, the administration, they have been imprisoning children. They have been taking off uh, people, see, hopefully seeking a better life, immigrants, into mm. the country. And kept in conditions the look very much like a concentration camp even even from the photos i've seen the the administration themselves have posted i've not seen a lot of uh, photographs but the um but other articles that i've read around uh, the captivation of specifically children have all likened it to a concentration camp and if i remember rightly there was a quote uh, from Donald Trump saying that they weren't, and then he went on to describe them, and that is almost verbatim of how you would describe a concentration camp. Yeah, one second. Uh, one, let me have a quick look. Okay, so Chris has just sent me a picture, and yes, it, it's not good, is it? The uh, the kind of scenes that you see in a in a World War Two movie of concentration camps. To be fair, uh, it, it looks not at all dissimilar. To, to that scene. So Chef has been working with the US government since around about 2014. Yep. And uh, I, I believe that this is with a number of government offices, of which the US Immigration and Customs Enforcement Department is, is one of the uh, departments that, that use Chef. Yeah, and I understand they were trying to Im- yeah, improve their automation and other services provided by the US government. And definitely reducing the cost of government services is a, is a good thing to to want to do. Absolutely. I, I personally find this difficult because they they use working with the Obama administration as a sort of defense. And I, while I admit that we couldn't switch to a borderless world overnight, I, I just find borders difficult anyway. Like, like, I already have a moral issue and then this makes it even worse. Yes, uh, it, it has always struck me as a little odd that um, people should get so het up about the patch of land that they were born and find themselves in. <laughs> Very much so. I'm yeah, totally with you there. Um, so, but the reason this really is in the news is not that this has just come to light, because I suppose anybody drudging through public records could probably see an amount of public money going to 
to uh, to Chef. So the reason that Chef are in the news now is not because um, this has just suddenly come to light and everybody's shocked. It has come to light through an ex-employee of Chef who developed and maintained some of the chef modules uh, that was relied on by an awful lot of the chef community. Mm. Now, when they found out that chef were working with ICE, um, they decided that they would pull those modules from, I believe, GitHub, uh, or at least from a, from a publicly right. available repository. Now, the problem is that, that uh, I think chef that was uh, themselves perhaps hosting some of the infrastructure for ICE um, or at least working with them in in very very close ties. This ripping out of the of modules from GitHub caused an immense amount of downtime at ICE um, because they were so fundamental to to the running and imp- wow. uh, provisioning of of infrastructure. So for a full twenty four hours, our current Chef employees were rushing around trying to. Um, rewrite and and regain copies of this these modules to basically plug a hole. I don't believe that it was just ICE that was affected by this. Other chef customers were affected as well. So this brings up an interesting topic then of large organisations leaning on, uh, shall we say, publicly available infrastructure um, and not hosting things in house that are critical to their to their running. If someone pulls a, a repository. Do I not keep the version I had previously? Like, surely that's still on my local copy of whatever dependency is. From what I understand, people don't tend to cache the their dependencies, basically. So if you download... Let me let me sort of sum it up in, in some slightly more Linuxy terms, because that's what I'm a yep. little bit more comfortable with. If yes. you're using a publicly available um, YUM repository for CentOS, yep. and the maintainer of that repository removes curl then sure if you've got curl on some of your machines currently they have curl but any new machine that you deploy that you want to install curl on you go out to that publicly available infrastructure to get it and it's no longer there okay so that removed the ability for chef to work and shut ice down for 24 hours i believe so yes so the fallout from that this was published today 23rd of september uh but on the uh Chef.io blog. As many of you know, we began our work with the US government in earnest in 2014 and 15. This included DHS and its various departments under a different set of circumstances that exist today. And they were trying to, it goes on to say they were trying to modernize the computing infrastructure. And I, I can see that, I can understand that. I think, I say, reducing the cost of government is a good thing to want to do. Absolutely. Obviously, they're still a company, they're going to be trying to make money the nature of companies and uh, i don't see a huge problem other than working with immigration in general but this is a different level i think yes i think this harks back to um the fact that so this was uh 2014 2015 would have been in uh, obama's final um what are they called? administration yep. yep and it goes back to you can do something with a government or a or a um, a power, shall we say, and uh, quite naturally that power can change. And yeah. the department under Obama was perhaps doing something slightly different, and under the current president is you know doing what we've seen um, and, and already talked about. Yeah, I, I I don't want to excuse the Obama administration either. Like 
they they don't have a perfect track record on immigration issues yeah, at absolutely. all. Um, but uh, yeah, they weren't locking kids up in <laughs> what I think, yeah, are quite clearly concentration camps. Yeah. Sad that we've gone to that stage. And I'm working with them. And yeah, it does, it does bring up exactly the issue you talk about where you, you build something and you lose, well, a certain amount and you lose control of it and you build it. People can use it that you didn't intend to use it. Like you, you can't necessarily decide who can and can't use it, unless <laughs> maybe you've got a repository system. Uh, but even then, what it's only it's only stops it for twenty four hours. Yes, and I, I think one of the interesting things is I don't know the licensing of the chef modules. And I don't know where the ownership lies. It's interesting to think that they didn't. Well, again, because it was on a public infrastructure i think it was on github um they themselves wouldn't have had backups for this what um chef would. chef chef wouldn't have had backups oh, wow. for these because it's on github so so you know. it's yeah it's, it's external dependency <laughs> yeah. um yeah the, the interesting thing is if they had uh i believe that npm uses their own infrastructure so yep. if they'd used an npm model then potentially a restore from backup might have been uh, well, it would have technically been available to them, but depending on how the depending on the ownership of the modules and the licensing of the modules, they may not yep. have been allowed to have restored if the author had pulled it in the first place. Hmm. Okay. Did NPM saw that then? Because I remember previous times they've they have restored stuff forcibly. I that... can't remember. I think in the very famous one where um, it was like a library to do some it's left uh, pad. Left pad, yes, that was it. Yeah. Um, I think somebody just rewrote it because it was incredibly simple. No, um, uh, npm restored it from backup. Oh, they restored least, it from backup. At least the the existence of the repository, like right, like the <laughs> whether or not the code was exactly the same, I don't <laughs> know a hundred percent because it is just mm. left pad. But they 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 reused that space so that right. everyone who previously was unable to get the code they needed could yes. now get it. So the result of this has been that, that Chef have said they will not renew their contracts with ICE and uh, Customers of Border Protection once they've expired, so that's over the next year apparently. But they have to fulfill their current obligations with the current contracts, which... Like we've said, Chef are a company, they're there to make money. And yeah. if they have a contract in place and they've got to honour it. I, I personally think in the balance of things, this is probably the best result we could have hoped for talking about this and holding companies to account does work it's interesting weirdly like chef is a company that i assume relies on an awful lot of open source contributions yep so this is for, so for them like when you're in a situation where the supply side of your business is pissed off at you not just the demand side of your business <laughs> it it seems to be an even bigger threat like they want to be a company that people are willing to work for and willing to contribute to and uh yeah i think i think that demonstrates that there, there is a way of holding them to account absolutely so the other issue i think we should probably talk about is rms or which is Stallman leaving the uh, leaving mit and the free software foundation rms uh is uh, richard Stallman, and richard Stallman in the 1980s founded the gnu um project to start rewriting a number of unix tools that were free and open source. He's the uh, author of the GPL licenses. Uh, 
He also, I think, is the original author of Emacs, or at least a massive contributor to Emacs. He's ex- his views are extreme uh, in software freedoms, and he is followed by many. I think that the entire industry, as far as his technical achievements um, have have gone, people may not particularly like him, but they respect him for his advances in in software freedoms over the last ooh, um, thirty years. The piece of information that came to light that caused his resignation was a was it a mailing list? Yeah, it was a, an email sent to the mailing list. Uh, this was in relation to one of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking victims has testified that she was ordered to have sex with the late MIT professor Marvin Minsky during a trip to the US Virgin Islands. She was 17 years old at the time. And Stallman wrote that she had likely presented herself to him as entirely willing. And then, I've concluded from various examples of accusation inflation that it's absolutely wrong to use the term sexual assault in an accusation. And I think that, that yeah, that this, <laughs> this is not good. Like, having the, the head of the Free Software Foundation saying these things does not present the organization in a good light at all. No, I think we hold organizations account for the, their figureheads, for their for their public faces. And so because the Free Software Foundation is so intrinsically linked to Stallman, what Stallman says directly affects our views of the Free Software Foundation. Yeah, especially if they're gonna cope, like put up with him. I'm mm. I'm I'm I'll come out now. I'm, I'm generally on the side of of him resigning and, and leaving the organization. I think that's better overall. I don't think you can publicly say that and expect to maintain your position. No. Uh, he goes on later on to say, uh, I think it is morally absurd to define rape in a way that depends on minor details, such as which country it was in or whether the victim was 18 years or 17 years old. I suppose I really have to ask a certain amount of like, why are you thinking about this? I don't understand why these sort of questions are on his mind and why you're you're defending it. Like, th- this woman was 17 years old when she was raped. I, I, I think the problem, uh, I think the A problem is having watched videos with of Stallman doing talks and um actually mm. I've I've attended one of his talks he comes across as somebody that is um not socially normal shall we say he he doesn't um easily conform to social norms i think everyone said he is uh neurodivergent yes so and i i think that when you and this is not whatsoever defending him but i think when you look at somebody who is particularly analytical in a systems type way you know completely logical with no that with with no social you could go and look at the uk and see that their age of consent is 16 and you could look at the us and i don't know what the age of consent in the us is but i'm guessing it's 18 i think the context is important here absolutely the the context in which we're, we're talking about is not people whose age is separated by one or two years we're talking about someone much older having sex with someone much younger. And I think that's <laughs> wrong in any uh, situation because the younger person can't understand, like, they can't consent. Current research, as far as I'm aware, 
suggest brain development continues up until you're 25. Yeah, people people should be taking that into account. Like, I think I think that one of the things that he is completely missing is the fact that a 17 year old girl could indeed present as being um, completely willing um, mm. to something. What he seems to be missing is that somebody of that age is perhaps easy to coerce and doesn't yes. necessarily know that they are being coerced. Completely. So it would, of course, look completely willing. Yeah. There's so there's so many problems in there. Like... Why, why argue over it? I think that... Exactly. I think that what you said earlier is it's to... To be putting these out on public mailing lists and mm. to be to show that you're actively thinking about it, especially somebody in his position, is is extremely questionable. Yeah, these are not thoughts that go through people's minds. Even at least that's my experience of the world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and if you're like, if you're trying to defend someone from a prison sentence because they raped someone at 17 rather than 18 why like i, I generally have to think why are you doing that what's mm. what's the what's what are your goals with that defense yeah the other bit that he was talking about was a, a post that had come from a very long time ago where he had talked about uh sex between an adult and a consenting child and he responded to this on his blog and he said, uh, many years ago I posted that I could not see anything wrong about sex between an adult and a child if the child accepted it. Through personal conversations in recent years, I've learned to understand how sex with a child can harm psychologically. This has changed my mind on the matter. I think adults should not do that. I'm grateful for the conversations that enabled me to understand why. Why the fuck do you need that explaining? Like, that's the bit that sickens me like truly sickens me no one however neurodivergent needs that explaining i think that storman's views have always been extreme and and generally extreme about everything i remember this is going slightly off I remember back in 2011, shortly after Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs had uh, passed away, mm. um, Storman wrote an article basically saying that he was glad that Steve Jobs was dead. Um, wow. Like, you know? I, I don't know. I'm kind of just angry about this. Like, like this is on his own website. This isn't. This is stuff he's talking about publicly yeah. and is admitting to himself. So I think this falls under the uh, the comment I made about <laughs> Chef. Like Chef, you're we're getting it from the source that should be most biased. Um, you shouldn't need personal conversations to explain why having sex with a child is wrong. In the same way, you probably shouldn't need personal conversations to explain why murdering someone is wrong, or you know, punching someone. It, it's, it seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I 100% agree with you. Um, playing devil's advocate somewhat, um, I've seen plenty of children punch people and, and certainly wish death on other people and they need to have it explained to them. And I wonder, for a child that's not had it explained to them ever, do they grow up to be somebody that thinks that? 
I mean, there clearly are people that grow up, but I've never, I've never seen someone. And this is the bit that really worries me. I've never seen someone defend punching someone that didn't want to punch someone. Mm, no, absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm kind of sickened, and I'm pretty sad uh, at all this. Especially now, I found it on his own website. Uh, I was. I was very nervous about finding different sources and getting a, a mistaken impression of this. But even even his defense on his website makes me feel that it was way past time where he should have stepped down. I think that for me, obviously, what Stormont has said is is awful, and there is no. Um, there's no forgiveness for for what he said, and I think that his actions of stepping down from two institutions are right. One of the things that I feel great shame about is that this has been picked up by some mainstream media. They've perhaps not done the best at reporting it, but what it's done is thrown the free software community in the public limelight in completely the wrong light. Yeah, yeah, which is is a shame. Because I think that the for, for any organisation, open or closed, has its criticisms, um, and I don't always agree with uh, technical and and philosophical decisions of the Free Software Foundation. But it is there to do good, and um, a whole raft of people that may have read mainstream articles perhaps don't think that anymore. Hi, so today we've got David here to speak to us about moving into the tech sector, maybe a little bit later on in your career. Hi, Chris. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Um, so I didn't leave school with that great grades, so I went from dead-end job, dead-end job, landed a job in sales for the best company in the world, PC World. I went from domestic sales to business sales because I had a, a better knack for that, and then one of my business customers poached me and then I was kind of I was pushed out of that company basically so from there it was a case of well do I go back into trying to find uh, another job that I could possibly turn into a career that could take me months and months and months and months and months to find or do I go back into education get myself some qualifications and give myself a better chance for a good career which is what I did so I went back to college I did a couple of A-levels went on to university did my history degree Fully intent to become a history teacher. Spent two and a half years working in a school and decided that I actually had no desire to teach snotty teenagers history. And I kind of, uh, so I took some time out to help my wife with her business, like setting up a website, social media, that sort of thing. And then it was a case of, right, okay, well, there's not really much more I can do. Let's try and find some more work. And I came across an advert for a agency position. It was a temporary position, two months I called them up and I was like, okay, I'd like to know about this position. And they were okay. Well, it's it's a testing position. You'll be stood in front of a machine pressing the same button all day, every day for two months. Yeah, t testing, especially manual testing, isn't glamorous, is it? Well, that's how they sold it to me, right? Um, <laughs> and I was kind of a case of, uh, do you know, I, c I can do that for two months, I think. But I wouldn't want to do it for longer than two months. And so I went along and started the job. And it was a bit much more than pressing the same button 
over and over again repeatedly for for two months. They just didn't understand the role when they sold it to me. That does happen an awful lot with the uh, agencies as well. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So I accidentally that way fell into testing and I, I was there for less than a week when that company were going, hey, you know what, you, you're, you're actually pretty good at this testing thing. Do you, do you want a permanent job? And so I worked my two month contract with the agency and started there permanent, which was quite nice. And I was there for two and a half years in the end. Okay, so what did that role entail? Um, so initially, I was um, I was just a test analyst. So I was I was simply running test scripts. It was a case of make sure that this machine does what the test script is asking it to do. But it wasn't long after becoming a test analyst that you kind of pick up the the idea of how a test script is written, and then when new requirements come in, it's a case of oh, we need tests written for these requirements. So I started writing the test cases as well. And yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was good fun. My claim to fame at that particular company is I managed to write a test script that had 76 steps and would never pass. <laughs> I think we've all been there. <laughs> 76, 76 steps might be the problem. Well, yeah, you say that, but it was really convoluted because there was a particular thing that they wanted to prove. They wanted to prove the accountancy function kept adding up correctly. And I will say that the accountancy function on the machine was absolutely fine, but the machine just couldn't couldn't handle doing all of the things that the test script was asking it to do in such quick succession. Was this so was this an automated test? No, script? no, this was manual testing. Um, so yeah, I was, did manual testing for, for a while while I was there. It was probably only the last, yeah, the last 12 months or so while I was at the company that I got into automated testing. So how did you get into automated testing from the manual testing side? So the project I, I initially started on while I was at the company, that started to wrap up and it was a case of, okay, well, now we need to redeploy our um, task force, if you like, to new projects that are come up and coming. And they had a, a particular project. Um, and I will say that this is this is still prior to being an automated tester. So they had a particular project that had popped up that they didn't have a test lead for. And so it was a case of, we need someone to do this. Do you fancy it? So I was like, yeah, okay, I I. I I'll give it a go. Um, it's something that I would like to do in the future. So I got this test lead role for this project, which I started and got up and running in, in the testing sense. So I'd gone from test analyst to full-on tester, writing scripts, running scripts, to test lead, writing test specifications and test plans and assigning work to, to the rest of the team. I had two testers under me, which was quite nice. Um, and once that was up and running, it was a case of, they had an automation spot open up on a different project down the hall. And I was like, oh, I really want to do test automation. I, I really like the idea of, uh, of of getting into like having things done automatically and writing code. And it was a case of, do I stay as a test lead or do I go and do test automation? But basically, ultimately, my test lead position sort of faded because like the bit I was supposed to be doing came to an end. So it was then... Do I want to go and do a test lead on a different project or do I want to go back to being a, a test analyst or do I want to go and do automation? And I opted for automation because, well, it is the future of testing. So if companies aren't doing it already, they're silly. So I went down the hall to do test automation. I, I started off really simple in, in test automation. Uh, we were using Ride as, a, as an IDE, which makes the whole robot framework even simpler than it than it already is. So I've not, I've not heard of RIDE uh, or Robot Framework. How, how does RIDE work? 
Um, so Ride is um, so you, I'm guessing you use Visual Studio, right? Uh, I use Visual Studio Code, but I've used Atom before. I could tend to put a more lightweight uh, code editor. So so Ride is is the IDE. That that's where the the scripts are written. That that's all it. it it gives it basically it allows you to write automation test scripts using a spreadsheet type form and, and it highlights boxes if anything's wrong so the the cell essentially gets highlighted in red if there's an error or it that doesn't work rather than having to go through and debug i like, I like the spreadsheet analogy that i'm going to have a look at this because spreadsheets are in my view one of the easiest ways to program like when, when you're editing a spreadsheet and putting formulas behind it and if statements and everything else, you are programming. But they just give you a really simple interface to do what is in some situations quite complex <laughs> uh, software engineering. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I found for the purposes of our automation scripts, it was quite limiting writing the scripts in that fashion. So I quickly turned over to uh, writing my scripts in PyCharm. So what does PyCharm give you in ways of assisting you to write tests? It's, it just basically gives you a blank sheet to write your scripts in. So you were just writing Python at that point? Um, no, I was still using um, Selenium and Robot Framework. I just wasn't using the spreadsheet design. Right, so yeah. Ride lets you write Robot Framework? Yeah. So, so In a very yeah. simplistic so interface? So Ride interfaces is in a spreadsheet form. Um, although you can see it in its code, I want to use the term code loosely. You can switch to notepad view so you can see it written as text rather than in, in spreadsheet form. I've seen what you were talking about, what robot framework outputs, and it is code. Like, I know it gets translated to Python, but code gets translated to lots of intermediate steps along the way. So that that definitely is code. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, a really cut down version is all. That's an interesting question. Have you got uh, like branching and iteration? So can you do if statements and loops? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, that's code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm not. I'm not disputing the fact that it's code. It's just it's it's it, it's a cut down version. You you don't have to worry so much about making sure that everything is like got the correct spacing or the brackets in the right place or the correct indentation. Ruby is very much the same in that regard. Um, and, and as I say, uh, a lot of the tests we end up writing in Ruby look very much like the robot framework syntax that you uh, showed me there. So I switched over to PyCharm uh, just because I found it easier. My, my, my brain processed it easier written as text rather than in, in the spreadsheet. I also found it easier to create keywords using uh, writing in PyCharm rather than Ride. Um, I think it, Ride was, was fairly limiting to uh, libraries that had already been created. Having said that, you can create your own libraries for Ride. Um, but then if you're savvy enough to be able to create your own libraries for Ride, I don't think you should be using Ride. Um, and so that's what I, that's currently what I'm using to, to write my scripts. I still use PyCharm. I still use Selenium Robot Framework, Auto IT library as well. So that's the library of keywords that I use because um, I obviously I do webs, web-based testing. So some of the web-based tests that you do, uh, you have to upload files, yeah? So when you click that upload file button, it opens a Window Explorer window, but that Windows Explorer window is not controllable using Selenium or web-based testing tools. So Auto IT then allows you to uh, manipulate a Windows-based window um, so then you can just 
dump in the file path for the file that you want to upload and click the upload button. Yeah. File uploads are always such a pain. Yes, they are. Implementing them, putting the test data in, it's, it's always just like, why isn't this easy now? It's crazy. It's, it's so crazy. But, you know. Um, so you, you learned all this at your previous company. Um, so, and got yeah, comfortable doing it. I learned the bulk of it. And did, did they support you in, in that training? Were they sort of... Uh, yeah, giving you the time to work out exactly how you want to do. Was there someone there that could uh, teach you it? Yeah, there was someone there that could teach me it, but they weren't, I don't want to say they were supportive, but I also don't want to throw a negative light on them because automation, like all things, it has a cost, right? And so I previously wanted to set it up on previous projects before I went down the hall to do automation. I wanted to set automation up. But when I came up with how much it would cost for the setup, all of a sudden management are going, oh, that's really expensive, isn't it? And that's because like project managers, program managers, and people that, that run the books, they look at that, that initial cost. What does that cost at this time? Not what's that going to cost us over the next five years? Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because at least the environment I'm in, in software engineering, is one where it's more the opposite of that. Like most of the project managers wouldn't think I had done the work and certainly hadn't done a good enough quality of the work if it wasn't covered by tests because they've seen enough time stuff get deployed by a developer who was rushing and it not work out quite right yeah I mean like and it's not just because I'm a tester but testing is key right yeah you, you have no assurance that it works without testing like you have it's never 100% no absolutely but, not it's impossible I'm interested to know is it that there's a cost to automated testing uh, versus no testing, or there's a cost to automated testing versus manual testing? So all of that is correct. So if you did no testing whatsoever, you could essentially take your, your code, your application, whatever it is you've built, you could take that to the project managers and go, here, this, that we built this, it, none of it failed. And you say none of it's failed because none of it's been tested. And so you create a false confidence there. And if you just do manual testing, that might be okay for like a smaller application or a more complex application. So there's areas in the applications I'm testing currently that it's the the effort involved to automate it outweighs the need to automate it. And and then when you get onto automation, that's what you have to take into account. You know how how much how much effort am I going to be uh, putting in to automate this piece of functionality against how many times I'm actually going to run this test. If, if I put in six months of work writing a test script to automate one piece of functionality, is that really financially worth it? I think I think there is stuff on that that can be done to try and write our applications, and this is on developers, and where the teams need to be more and more and more integrated, but try and make, write our applications in a way that are easier to test, that don't cause those sort of problems. The key thing I take away from testing is, is cost of change. Like if you're if you've got to run a bunch of manual tests every time you change something in the system, then it's that's going to take a you know making a change is expensive. Even and even if you're doing your testing in production, as it were. But you should you should have a level of confidence, right? So continuous deployment, I absolutely agree with that. That should absolutely be something that everybody does. But you should go through your stages. You go through your environments before you hit production. You shouldn't just go right. Okay, I've done that. I've tested it, my unit test passed, your manual test passed on that particular piece of functionality, let's get it in production and then test it as a whole. My understanding of testing in production was that you have less confidence about the code you deployed last night than you did the code you deployed six months ago, assuming 
usage patterns are the same across them. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I run my tests. Uh, so I have a suite of tests that I run daily on the application I'm currently working on. And they run, it's a small subset of tests in production, but none of them create any data in production, which I think it, that is key. If you are testing in production, you don't want to create any, any data. When I say testing in production, what I mean is actually deploying the code and seeing what real users do. So this is something that larger companies can do, but it's about monitoring the deployment and how does it go and how effective is it and, and all that side of it. So, I mean, we, we largely use our, our pre-production. It's, it's a bit unique as in our end users are the university staff for this particular application. So we're never going to see levels like maybe our Blackboard system, for instance, sees because that's used by staff and students alike, right? So, and we have uh, a ridiculous amount of students at the university. And then we've got a staff of, I think, well over 5,000 staff members. And then this particular application that we're, we're currently working on is, is for even fewer staff. So it's, it's for one particular department, and they're the only ones that are going to be using this particular application. So in, in a lot of ways, we don't need to do the user-intensive testing in production because that's pretty much done in pre-production. It's, it's kind of difficult to do in that scenario because I work in a very similar uh, sort of environment. But the difficulty, I suppose, is more about your, your number of users. The organizations that can do this sort of continuous deployment have orders of magnitude more users than we're talking about here. Like 5,000 is, is tiny for them. So they can deploy the software to a subset of users, like 1% of users, and see what the error rates are and be like... Oh, the, the error rates are the same as last time. We're, we're okay with that. Not only that, that have an actual product that, that can be distributed like that. Um, for everything that Microsoft might want, they can't do continuous delivery of Word because they can't just kind of, you know... Well, they might be getting there actually with the, uh, the web delivery stuff, but certainly Windows isn't. So you're now working uh, in an academic organization mm-hmm. and testing internal use software for internal customers yeah uh, so and you're using uh, what was it the robot framework you yes. said which is just really a slight sort of readability improvement over regular python yeah and, and that's why i say it's it's coding for people with out coding experience because it's it's easy readable and it is a footstep in in the door of of like extensive coding and i can totally understand how someone could take this and learn more coding from it it's a, a potential stepping stone like it leaves that option open to you i think yeah so are you using this um robot framework sort of um raw if you like or, or does something sit on top of it how do you how does i guess um a tester interact with this so i create my uh, my suite of test scripts and i generally group them by so i try and do it by sprint because um, we work in an agile fashion. And so I will create like Sprint 10. And that's my robot file. And that's where I write all my scripts. And then I have a Python file that ultimately runs all the scripts for me because they're Python readable. So I inst- I've got the appropriate applications and, and systems installed where my Python file can go, oh, okay, I'm going to grab that robot file. And then it goes in there and it cross-references 
and this sounds like it takes an age to do, but it really doesn't. Once the Python reads the robot file, it goes, right, okay, I'm using this library, this library, this library. These are my variables. Okay, these are my keyword files. And then it goes through the test script and it goes, right, okay, pick out that keyword, run that keyword, run the keyword within that keyword, pick out the variables for that keyword. And in a matter of seconds, it, it's run a test script. So I just have to make sure that I write my keywords appropriately. Uh, on, on the timing, how long does a whole suite take to run? Like every test for a project? I might ask you, how long would it take you to write some code for an application? No, I, I, know, I know where you're coming from there. Uh, but I'd, I'll start then. It's like, yeah, the, the projects I work on tend to have test suites that take between a minute and 15 minutes to run. So uh, the same. So I have uh, test scripts that will be banged out in seconds. Um, yeah, but how is that just that's one script? Like, how long does the whole suite take against the application? Um, if I when I run all of my tests, uh, so the entire suite of tests, then that will take uh, I think it's like two and a half hours to run the tests. Okay, all, that's that's running all of the tests, right? And and that's largely because my tests run as a user would in, interact with the interface. So I, I think that's all testing is necessary. Like, I don't. There is benefit from a development point of view to writing smaller tests, unit tests, but that's not what you're trained in, and that's something that's very code facing. And the the feature tests are necessary to prove that user behavior, like to to, to prove that everything has been integrated and works together. And sometimes they do take that long. And and some of my tests they they have explicit waits, so they they have to wait a specific amount of time because. That's just what they have to do. You can try and use implicit weights, but in some cases they just don't work, um, which is annoying because I would rather use the implicit. But, you know. I worked on a project that um, I think that a full test run would take about nine hours. But that's because one of the tests was an eight-hour robustness test to make sure something didn't crash if used for eight hours. I mean, I might separate that one out. Yeah, That was the full suite of tests. Normally, you just run segments of the other hour that, you know. Um, in my last job, we had our, our suite of tests. We'd, we'd click play before going home one night, and then we'd hope they were finished when we came in in the morning. And that was because they had to, and it was really frustrating. Um, we, we solved this in the end. We, we got rid of the, the test that took the time. One of the tests took four and a half hours to run on its own because it was inputting data into the database. And so we countered that by gaining access to the database and permissions to edit the database. So we ran our data creation test once, took a snapshot of the database, and then just every time we tore down the environment, just re-input the backup of the database. So rather than have to run all the data creation tests, which was really handy. One of the things that is frustrating in tests is dealing with the little edge cases you've already you've been talking about. Uh, sometimes having to use explicit weights, sometimes having to deal with bits of the operating system UI. And I can't imagine the robot framework solves all of those problems. How how do you deal with that kind of situation? So it, it doesn't it doesn't solve all of those problems. And I don't think there's a single tool out there that does solve all of those problems. To be fair, um, so you just have to deal with things the the best way you can. So like I was saying earlier about um, auto IT library controlling Windows elements. So when I get to those uh, scenarios where I need to control a Windows pop-up, for instance, I have auto IT scripts written that will deal with that for me. So it steps out of the robot test and into the, the auto IT script and runs that. 
what about like if you're trying to click on a really fiddly item somewhere like a link without a proper name and there is an identifier you can find to use for it so one of the things with the application that i'm currently testing is there's a lot of tables in it uh, it's just the way it's built is and it's because the, each row of the table represent it's, it's basically a database and so all of the cells have dynamic ids and they're not the same the next time you load the page um, so it's, it makes it really difficult when you want to click on the third one across fourth one down Sometimes you can get away with using uh, a wildcard ID, but the problem with wildcard IDs is it will generally select the first thing on the page it comes across that matches that wildcard, which is not always the thing you want to click. So you have to get creative with your locators, which means delving into the HTML and finding something that is unique about that item you want to click. So you've been yeah you've been dealing with the DOM and HTML and and all of that side of it. As part of this yeah, as well, I kind of have yeah. to, which is annoying because if if uh, the annoying thing is the application software that we're using, it's not something that is built in house. It's a third party software, but we develop it in house, so we change it to our own needs, and so we're kind of stuck with the IDs that the third party company give it. And as I say, they're dynamic and they're thirty six characters long, and you know it, they're they're really difficult to work with, and so you end up having to go for uh, classes or whatever else. So is the is that vendor not writing tests themselves? I certainly hope they are. That seems like some duplicated effort there. That's that's interesting. Well, yes and no. So the third party software, I I would certainly hope the size of the company that produced the software, I would certainly hope that they're testing their out of the box functionality. And then when we we get it, like for what we're developing, we're 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 changing it quite considerably, but we're using their base code, if you like. I see. Yeah, yeah. I see why you're doing testing. So it, some of the functionality that, that we implement is a case of, oh, okay, yeah, we're just turning that flag on. So that piece of functionality works for those particular people in that group. And some of that is a case of, okay, well, I don't actually need to test that because you haven't done anything. You've just turned it on. So we just need to make sure that those people can see it. But then there's other pieces of functionality where it's a case of, okay, well, this isn't out-of-the-box functionality. This is something that we're creating that's bespoke for this department. So we need to make sure that actually that does work the way they want it to work. Because we're dealing with uh, student data. So there's there's quite big onus on confidentiality. So we have to make sure that the correct people can see the correct files and the correct people can't see the, the correct files, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Cool. Do you have you, anything else you want to ask, Ben? All I will say, because I say this to every test that I come up against, it's a job I couldn't do. I do not have the patience for it. I, I've tried, not not for, for want of doing it, but, but out of necessity. And um, I, I ha- do not have the patience for it at, at all. So, um, yeah, no, you've, you've uh, got all the praise from me. I find that with testing, patience is not the key, but rather being pedantic. And I have been told throughout my life how pedantic I actually am. Um, which kind of makes me perfect for testing. Yeah, I, I think there's an aspect to that. And I think there's definitely benefit in having some aspect of the testing separated from the developers. The team I'm currently in, we do it all. And it's, it's so tempting to, uh, like if, you be, if you're under a tight deadline, to just skip that little bit. Just, just not, maybe not all of it, just some of it. Testing is always the area that gets cut. It's always the area where they go, right, okay, well, we've overrun on this, so we're going to have to cut down the amount of time you've got to test. So, you know, at that point, you then have to go, well, what's most important to test? What's the highest priority? Yeah, and interestingly, if I am making that decision, I would normally prioritize the sort of tests you're talking about. 
to tests that make developers' lives easier. My view of it, at least, is that testing the interface, like the code itself, like testing little units of the code, little classes or whatever, is about making sure that class still does the, the correct thing for other developers. Developers are essentially the consumer of that class. But feature tests, the, the uh, sort of integration side of testing that you're talking about, where you're actually driving a website, that's what the users are going to interact with. And that's the bit that ultimately matters. Like, that's the hopefully the solution to the customer's problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that, and that's where I sit. I sit at the system test level, where it's like, you know, when you write your code, you're doing unit tests. Uh, I know we do, we do the whole lot, by oh, the way. Okay. Like, well, you should, to be fair, you should only be doing your unit testing and you should have an independent team of people doing, or well, no, you don't have to have an independent team of people. It depends how. I think there's definitely, yeah, there's definite benefits to that. I can I can definitely see that uh, we have a very small agile team, and that makes it difficult to do it in that way. I think that where I've been before, because I've seen both, and what has been universal at least is that the person that wrote it doesn't test it. I think that's, uh, yeah, a, that's a, a really good point. That's actually. Yeah, because you know, otherwise you have some developers out there that are that still have the mindset like when you go to them with an issue and they go, oh, but it works all right on my machine. It's like, okay. Mm. Oh, God. No. <laughs> That's, it works all right on your machine. Let's deploy your machine and you to every customer, and then we've got no problems, right? There is one thing I'd like to just tweak on that. Feature tests, like, I totally agree with you in terms of having somebody other than the person that wrote the code write the feature test. I can see benefits there. But having the, d- the developer writing the unit tests, some of that also implies intent. Like, some of that is used to communicate to another developer as to what's going on. Yeah, agreed. And and those the unit tests and their results should be passed up the chain as well. So we should be as a, as a test team, we should be receiving the results. They should be run as the whole suite. Yeah. Yeah, you don't remove them, you don't pull them out afterwards. <laughs> it all, all gets just bundled in and run. Um yeah, okay. I think that was really good. There was lots of useful stuff there. Uh thanks a lot for coming on and chatting to us. No worries. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode.